0: For another perspective on the new biology of malignant glioma and the approach to a high-tech translational interdisciplinary clinical operation, I met with Dr. Friedman, who began our conversation by commenting on the historic perceptions within the medical community about this
1: not-so-uncommon tumor. When you talk about malignant glioma, most people in the United States believe that it is a lethal tumor with a median survival of about 14 months. It's even worse than that because most of the people who train in the care of patients with malignant glioma are neurologists who train in neurology-driven neuro-oncology training programs. That's the way the academics work. It's not true at our institution. It's not true in a couple of other places. But in general, it's academic neurologists who do neuro-oncology. But when you get into the community, It's almost exclusively medical oncologists who are doing the care. And during their training, although they may have prepared for working with patients with brain metastases from other cancers that arise outside the brain, they have no training with primary brain tumors. So they're stuck looking at the body of work that's been published, which is always three to five year lag time, and also reflects a total difference in philosophy between neurology and oncology. Neurologists tend to believe in two pathways. You either treat people on a clinical trial or you treat people with FDA-approved drugs. And from malignant Glioma, there are only two in the last 30 years, glidel wafers and Temozolomide. Medical oncologist holy Bible, revolves around the so-called use of off-label therapy. And off-label therapy are drugs that are used to help a patient, but they may not have FDA approval for that indication. That's really a very alien concept to neurologists who do neuro-oncology. So you've got a big divide there. You've got the people trained to take care of these patients, who don't do it in the community for the most part. You've got the people in the community who do it and don't train the academic centers to do it. It creates quite a dilemma. That's why something like what you're doing is so critical. Let's talk about some of the common clinical presentations that an oncologist
0: is likely to face. What are the usual sort of non-protocol algorithms, and what are the clinical
1: trial options, at least in your place? Okay. For somebody with a newly diagnosed glioblastoma multiform, the first fork in the road is, did a complete gross total resection get done or not? And when somebody comes to us who's had surgery elsewhere and we think we can go back and get a complete resection, we'll do it. If we think we can't, we won't. So if someone has had a complete resection, our options at Duke include trials that include things like vaccines against specific molecular targets that we believe to be very important in the biology of these tumors, things like epidermal growth factor mutation 3, EGFR 3, which is in about 25% of patients. And we have a vaccine against that. We have a vaccine against patients with newly diagnosed totally resected GBM that really targets CMV because it turns out, to many people's surprise, that CMV antigens are in the genome of virtually all GBMs, making it an even more ubiquitous target. We're about to open a trial using, after hundreds of patients have been done in phase one and phase two trials, a randomized phase three, Retrial where patients are going to get, after this surgery, a placement of a Rickham reservoir. Half of them are going to get monoclonal antibody conjugated to a radioisotope that targets this tumor, followed by radiation, followed by Temidar. The other half will get the same thing without the radioisotope bonded antibody. And we believe that that is going to make a big difference in that patient population, fortunate enough to be able to be qualified for that. We are doing a trial with Avastin for newly diagnosed patients with malignant glioma. And we'll be doing a series of trials with Avastin for newly diagnosed malignant glioma, particularly glioblastoma. Now, the other side of the coin is they have residual bulky disease that is not resectable. In those patients, if we're going to do clinical trials, we would give them therapy, Designed to treat the tumor pre radiation therapy and try to shrink it down. So, when we do do radiotherapy, we're targeting a smaller tumor burden, which we believe to be helpful. And then we have trials of so called neoadjuvant therapy. But there's always going to be a population of patients who are not able to go on a clinical trial. Either they've come to us beyond the eligibility time period. They may have a medical condition that precludes it, like a second malignancy. They may have other medical complications, like a pulmonary embolism. They may simply not be willing to go on a clinical trial because they're afraid to. In that patient population, we will not, at Duke, follow the general community approach, which is standard of care, Surgery to the best of one's ability, followed by radiation and followed by Temadar. We believe that to be a palliative venture in the vast majority of patients. And so we'll add additional therapy off-label to that patient population. And that, to us, is the single biggest difference between us and, I think, anybody else that you would see. We really believe that there should be three pathways. The clinical trials for newly diagnosed, and we do more than anybody else in the country. The clinical trials for a current disease, and we do more than anybody else in the country. But the willingness to take off-label drugs and use them for patients that are not going to go on to a formal clinical trial with the hope that the data that's already out there is strong enough that why have to wait four to five years for the clinical trial to prove Benefit for these agents when they're already commercially available, and perhaps the best example of that, and I'm sure Jim talked about it, is Avastin, Avastin and Irinotecan are producing extraordinary responses in patients with recurrent GBM. And so, if this is my family member or your family member, and they can't go on a trial, I'm hard pressed not to include that therapy as part of their overall treatment. Now, the neurologist would say, "Oh no, you can't do that," but the oncologist in the community by and large, you're willing to say, if the third party will pay for it, that's how we live. We live by the philosophy of off-label use of drugs. What's the problem? i actually like to pick up on a bunch of the things that you just
0: commented on, kind of maybe going in reverse sequence. First, you mentioned the Bevacizumab. Can you talk a little bit about the clinical research data that's out there right now, for that matter, the laboratory research data, and then exactly how you do proceed in an off-label situation utilizing
1: it? The two major papers were done by Jim Vredenberg, one in Clinical Cancer Research, one in Journal of Clinical Oncology, they've been published, which showed response rates in recurrent GBM of 50 to 60% and progression free survivals at six months of 30 to 43%. And those are Preposterously good results compared to virtually anything else out there. For example, temozolomide, in its registration study, had a five percent response rate in recurrent GBM. Nobody really knows how bevacizumab or Avastin truly work. People believe that it's you know antiangiogenic; it targets VEGF. There are some people who believe that it normalizes the vasculature, so things that you give with it will reach the tumor better, but bevacizumab alone has a very high activity without anything else. Some people, like Jeremy Rich in our program, believe it targets the CD133-positive glioma-like stem cells, and it's a specific stem cell targeting agent. Some people believe that it just contributes to the benefits of other chemotherapy agents given with it. It remains an animal, yet how it works... But there's no question that it works and whether or not it's on protocol which is preferred or off protocol which is not preferred because it's much more difficult to get third parties to pay for it, although we're getting better for recurrent disease because we've got these papers out there, it's a much bigger challenge for newly diagnosed disease. But it's clearly a major step and the next big clinical trial will be done in Europe which will be the surgery radiation temodar, followed by temodar versus the same thing, that's the so-called stoop regimen, followed by that or compared to that given in addition with Avastin. That study will probably take three to four years before we have an answer, but we're all very hopeful that Avastin is going to prove the next big step in increasing survival of this patient population. Oh, in that situation, the
0: arena tecan has been dropped out. How
1: much do you think that's contributing to the benefit that was seen in these studies? Well, that's an interesting question because there's been a study, and I actually was the PI, and this paper will be submitted to New England Journal of Medicine within the next month, that compared Avastin to Avastin plus arena tecan in patients with recurrent GBM and first or second relapse. No question that there was a substantial increase in the response rate and in the six-month progression-free survival in favor of the two drugs versus the one drug. But what we don't know yet, if there was an increase in the survival, that's the one thing that we haven't sorted out yet. We're waiting to see if there's a difference in survival or not. What do you see in terms of side effects and toxicity with Avastin in these patients? Well, you've already talked to Jim Vredenberg, who'd have a better field than me. But in general, the common side effects are fatigue, which certainly can be profound we see intracranial bleeds in a trivial amount of patients we see some patients who get blood clots and a little bit higher incidence of patients but by and large the toxicity profile is pretty well tolerated i think the biggest problem that i see is these patients can get profoundly fatigued and you know fatigue is already a problem with gbm and so you look at things like provigil or ritalin or check their testosterone levels and see if there are things you can do to try to increase their energy level. But I don't want pyrrhic victories. I don't want patients who can't get out of bed while their tumors are shrinking. Now, what do we know about bevacizumab and Temidor? We know that bevacizumab and Temidor appear to be better than temodar alone. We know that almost everything that you combine with bevacizumab appears to be better than that agent used alone. So we're in trial with temodar and bevacizumab in both newly diagnosed patients and in recurrent disease patients, and believe we're seeing responses that go far beyond what we would see with either bevacizumab or with temodar. although those are single-arm trials which would have to provide the pilot data for true randomization. Now, you talked about integrating bevacizumab into non-protocol upfront therapy. Exactly yes. what's the regimen that you're using? Well, right now what we're using is patients get surgery, followed by radiation and temodar, and then they're treated with... Temidar for two rotations, followed by CPT11 and Avastin for two rotations, and then maybe CCNU or Tarceva based on some of the molecular profile of the tumor. But we are strongly considering now going to simply parallel what we we're already in clinical trial with, which is surgery followed by radiation, Temodar and Avastin, followed by Temidar, CPT11, or Renotequin, and Avastin as a trio. Until recently, people were afraid to even use the drug in brain tumors.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that's a big question, of course, right now, in metastatic disease to the brain and and a whole bunch of other tumors. What's your take on the whole issue of bevacizumab and brain mets and primary brain
1: tumors in terms of bleeding? Well, the original concern came from the colorectal registration trial we had two patients: one with hepatic cancer that meted to the brain, and one with a gastrointestinal tumor of some sort. I think colon had brain mets, and they bled when they got a CPT-11, and 5-FU. And so the word on the street was, you don't do it. In point of fact, the incidence of bleeding in the primary glioma population is trivial; it's under one percent in our hands, easily. And so now there are a lot of people around the country that are either initiating or have initiated trials of Avastin in patients with brain mets. I think that's important because brain mets is a pretty dismal disease, and once you fail whole brain radiotherapy, systemic chemotherapy is not a particularly effective intervention. So I applaud those people who are using Avastin in the brain mets setting. We don't treat brain mets, so we're not doing it, but I think that it's a worthy and important set of questions because I think it will impact on that population just as well as in primary brain tumors. You're saying single agent bevacizumab and brain meds? Not necessarily single agent. I think bevacizumab always works better with something else. So whether it be with Temadar or TCAN or Velcade or one of a number of other agents that are out there, I think studies should be done and are being done with Avastin and brain meds because I do believe that it will increase the response rate of that patient population and hopefully survival. Now, you talked also
0: about neoadjuvant therapy. What kind of research has been done on that, and are there clinical situations
1: off-study where you're using that? Well, the clinical research right now for us would be we have a trial where if you have some residual disease, you still can qualify for Jim's study using surgery, followed by radiation, timo followed by the triple of Avastin, arenotequin, and bevacizumab. We don't require a complete resection if we have a small degree of residual disease. If we have a lot of residual disease, we're treating those patients with temozolomide and Avastin, and we're clearly getting responses, prodigious responses. And so that's how we would treat somebody with a clinical trial. Now, if I've got somebody who's got bulky disease and it's not a clinical trial candidate. They don't want it. It's been too late. They don't have the Karnofsky's performance score allowing them to get it. In some settings, with the right families, we would be willing to offer neoadjuvant therapy first anyway. And we have done that. And we believe that it is an appropriate thing to do. Because, for example, if you've got a butterfly glioma, which is unresectable across the corpus, I mean, you've got a hopeless scenario if you're just using Temodar in radiotherapy. So even in the setting where a trial might not work, we're willing to at least consider neoadjuvant therapy. Or if we don't consider that, we're willing to consider surgery, radiation with Temodar, but add Avastin in early on to the mix. We're willing to look outside the box. With the Temidar of Asin study, we've taken patients with bulky disease and given them complete responses on trial where they've had amazing responses. We've done it for some patients off protocol as well. We don't, as a rule, use it as much off protocol for newly diagnosed patients. We tend to be on protocol for them, but there are some patients where it's the right family, you think you can get an appropriate informed discussion, not a consent, because it's not a trial, where we will do a neoadjuvant approach prior to radiotherapy. I'm not advocating that for the general right. population. This is something that in the community, if you have somebody who has unresectable disease and they're not going to go on trial, I think they should get temodar and radiotherapy. But I think very quickly thereafter, their therapy should be expanded to go beyond Temadar because we know with Temadar alone, they're going to die. You also mentioned radioimmune therapy. Is that the NeuroDiab Yes, absolutely. That's the one that was licensed. That's, and again, conflict of interest. Just acknowledge it, that that is our antibody licensed by our institution to Bradmer. I serve as a consultant for Bradmer. I've got options with them. And so everything that I say needs to be in the face of the fact that I have a financial relationship with them. Having said that, there's no question that our studies to date in recurrent disease and in newly diagnosed patients have shown an ever-increasing survival of both patient populations, and this is a registration randomized phase three that will ask the question, does neuroradiab increase survival of patients with glioblastoma who are able to get it? That's a very sexy and a very clever study.
0: Now, can you talk a little bit about the
1: substance or the agent itself and how it's delivered? Yes. The antibody, 8-1-C-6, was created in Daryl Bigner, who's the head of our center, the head of the preston Brain Tumor Center's lab, by a postdoc called Mario Bourdon, who's now at the Salk Institute. And it targets a protein, extracellular matrix protein, called tenacin. And it is conjugated to I-131, delivered by a Riccum reservoir that is placed into the cavity following the surgical removal of a tumor. It binds to residual microscopic tumor and in effect is doing regional therapy. Now we know that GBM is not a regional tumor. We know that it is throughout the entire brain at the time of diagnosis, but we also know that the highest concentration of cells is in the wall of the crater and as you go out from that epicenter, your tumor concentration goes down. But if you can do something effective at the target site, same principle for gliadel, which releases BCNU, you decrease the tumor burden, and then given with systemic therapy, you really raise the hope that you can eradicate all the tumor cells. Now, can this radioimmune product be given systemically, or is it? No, it's given directly into the tumor through the Rickham reservoir. When you try to give it systemically, you achieve about point zero 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 one percent of delivered dose to the tumor because of the size of the antibody and the blood-brain barrier. And so, for those people who are doing monoclonal antibody therapy, like they are in Philadelphia. With an anti-EGFR antibody, I think that's preposterous. It's not getting there. We know it's not getting there. We did the studies. By putting it in a Rickham reservoir, delivering it directly where the catheter tip sits in the crater, you know it goes exactly to where you want it to go. Now, how long a period of time is it administered over? Well, the injection takes a minute. I mean, the Rickham reservoir. Oh, you just inject it and that's it? That's it. You inject it and that's it. And how does it compare with the gliadol wafer? There's never been a head-to-head comparison yet of the two. The results with Gliadel clearly showed a modest but a statistically significant increase in survival. The results with the monoclonal antibody have never been directly compared, and they show some marked prolongations of survival. But it's a difficult question because it's never been a head-to-head study. I doubt there will be. And patients are not necessarily exactly the same. You can treat patients with the gliadel, who have some ventricular communication. You may get a septic meningitis, but that passes. You don't do that with the monoclonal antibody. The monoclonal antibody has to be a perfect seal. There can't be any leak. More than that, with the monoclonal antibody, you have to be very careful to be away from any important turf, so to speak. If you're a centimeter or two within areas that would be considered vital, like speech, sensory motor, we'd be unlikely to do it because you're going to get penetration of the radioisotope at least that deep. Gliadel doesn't have the concerns of the same nature. So it's difficult for me to talk about a direct comparison. And when the trial was initially designed, we knew we didn't want to do directly against Gliadel because the patient populations are too distinct, necessarily. And so the trial is simply going to be the stoop regimen, surgery, radiation, with. Temadar, followed by Temidar, versus the same group who also get neuroradiab. I have no doubt that neuroradiab is going to increase survival. I think the study has to be done to prove it. Could you maybe describe a typical clinical situation where you would use gliadel and what typically happens? I think, frankly, that in anybody who is getting a gross total resection where there is not a major ventricular leak and the team has no competing protocol that they would have some reason to want to promote, I think gliadel should be standard of care. It's FDA approved. We know that single-agent therapy is not going to work. We know you can give surgery with gliadel, followed by radiation and Temidar, followed by other therapy, or just temodar alone. I'm a firm believer that there is no magic bullet, that no one therapy, unlike in perhaps CML with Gleevec, is going to happen in glioblastoma, and I believe, like in the childhood population, you layer one effective therapy on top of another, and that's how you're ultimately going to cure a significant fraction of patients. So I would use Gliadel in anybody where I could, unless I had a competing protocol that would preclude me from doing that.
0: Now, is that decision usually made by the neurosurgeon or the oncologist? It's made as
1: a team. Our neurosurgeon... How about in the community? the community, it's made by the neurosurgeon. Some neurosurgeons will use gliadel, others will not. Those who are using it, I think, are doing the correct thing. Those who are not using it, I think, need to not be using it for the correct reasons. The correct reasons would be that the oncology team has said, look, it will interfere with certain of our protocols that we want to accrue to. Okay, that's legitimate. I may or may not agree with the protocol that they're using instead of it, but that's a legitimate request. But to not use it for other reasons. There was concerns initially of infections, of edema, of septic meningitis. I think in the newly diagnosed population, these things are minimal. And I think that if I'm the neurosurgeon, the question that I really want to have asked or, or at least posed or at least brought to my attention is, what do you do when you take a patient with a newly diagnosed malignant glioma and you operate on them. There are no trials. You don't offer them or mention gliadel. You don't use the gliadel. And the patient later comes to you and says, why didn't you use an FDA-approved therapy? If I'm the patient, I'm pissed. If I'm the neurosurgeon, I'm nervous. What do we know about the quality of neurosurgery that's being done across this country for malignant glioma? I think what we know is that there's an ever-increasing but not complete awareness that a major resection is beneficial. I think there are still places where people believe that a needle biopsy where a resection could be done is acceptable. I think those people need to either be educated to stop doing that or just be told to stop doing that. I think we know that a major resection will increase the duration and quality of life, though not necessarily proving curative. It's not curative, but it will increase, I think, the quality of the patient survival, the duration, and I think it is the baseline on which you build additional therapy to follow.
0: You also mentioned earlier EGFR and the mutation 3.
1: Can you talk a little bit about what we know about that and what the implications are clinically? Yes. EGFR V3, which is the most common of the mutations, is a mutation And the extracellular binding site, and what you get is essentially a constitutively firing receptor that no longer needs EGFR to bind to it. It clearly has an adverse prognosis among patients who have V3. We also know that, unfortunately, patients with V3 are rare. There's only about 25 or 30% of GBMs that express V3. What we've been able to show is that in our patients who've been able to get vaccinated against V3, they do better to the point where CELDEX will now run a randomized phase three trial for V3 positive patients who will or will not get the vaccine. And so I think one of the messages that I want the oncology world to understand now is we've gone from drugs that barely help to drugs that help some modestly like Temidar, but they do help, it's an important foundation, I would never walk away from Temidar, to new phase threes where there are a lot of options out there that hopefully will produce at least one or two of them, which will result in increasing survival. We really have new therapeutic strategies which bear these randomized phase three studies to see if we're increasing survival. I think you're going to see in the next five years an increase in survival in patients with glioblastoma.
0: Are there any pragmatic clinical implications to EGFR overexpression or this mutation? And specifically,
1: I know erlotinib is one of the agents that's been looked at. What do we know about that? Well, erlotinib, the EGFR inhibitors, Tarceva, Eressa, gefitinib, erlotinib, we know that they have modest response rates, but we also know that if you dissect out the tumor, from a molecular standpoint, the best paper probably being the one in New England Journal of Medicine by Paul Michel's group, and actually Daryl Bigger and I wrote a commentary on that, the patients who had V3 present and a normal or a wild-type P10 were more likely to respond to a lot, tarceva or Eresa than were patients who didn't have that. So I think that we're learning that a GBM is not a GBM is not a GBM, and the molecular subprofiles are going to be critical so that we don't throw out a drug with maybe an overall 5% response rate, but when you look at the specific subgroups of GBM, might have a 20% response rate. We do V3, P10, EGFR, MGMT on everybody at Duke routinely, and we use that information less for protocol than for non-protocol patients. In other words, if we have patients where we are trying to figure out what to do next, We'll use those parameters to try to help us. Now, we use them for protocol purposes in certain settings, like V3. Obviously, with a V3 study, you got to know the V3 status. But we'll use that information even in a setting where it's not protocol. We think the more information, the better. So, I guess most docs don't have those types of panels easily available.
0: In that situation, is erlotinib something that should be considered as one of the options off protocol?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think erlotinib alone or with Temidar are drugs that will benefit a certain fraction of patients. I think there's a study that was done by Mike Prados where he did surgery followed by radiation and Temidar followed by Temidar and Tarsiva and has a very nice survival curve to the point where I believe he's going to try to bring that to a Phase three study, but I think he'll throw a Avastin in as well with that. So, for example, we've done an Avastin-Tarceva study, which looks very promising. So I think the more information you can get on these tumors molecular pathways, the better you are at the academic centers. I'm not sure yet they're ready for the routine medical oncologists in the community to be able to use them. And so what I think should happen is that when a medical oncologist gets a GBM patient, they should be referred to an academic center and then sent back to the medical oncologist to do the therapy, but let the academic center help in the design of the therapy. I think that way, from a scientific standpoint and from a financial standpoint, everybody gains. The oncologist in the community doesn't lose the financial resources of the patient. He's providing an on-site therapy, which is important for patients' ease of access, but the academic sites are helping to provide a level of scientific input that is not commonly available yet in the community.
0: What about AZD-2171
1: or Resentin? Can you talk about exactly what that is and to what extent it's been studied? AZD is another oral antiangiogenic agent it also is showing some good activity. I applaud that study. That's Tracy Bachelor's study from Boston. It certainly is a study that needs further pursuit because the early results are extremely encouraging.
0: What are some of the new areas in terms of molecular biology that are being worked on right now in gliomas that you think have the most impact on clinical care in the future?
1: Well, there are so many pathways that are screwed up, RAS and RAF and EGFR and mTOR, that I think that you almost have to just make an arbitrary pick and say, I'm going to work on RAS, or I'm going to work on RAF, or I'm going to work on EGFR and mTOR. We prefer to work on EGFR and mTOR as major pathways, but there are others. I think the more that we learn from the preclinical setting of agents that target those, the more one can try to apply them into the clinical setting, hopefully with studies that allow you to show that you're hitting target, because that's important. So some trials, for example, require you to give the drug for five or seven days, get a biopsy, prove you've hit target, suppress the target, and then continue with the therapy. I think those are very rationally designed studies. But I'm convinced that a GBM is not a GBM, is not a GBM, and we're going to need to really be doing some real molecular profiling to understand when a drug with what would appear to be overall a small response rate really is a pretty good drug. What about
0: imaging in terms of trying to assess the impact of these new agents? Anything new there that's going to be
1: helpful? God, it's such a nightmare because Avastin certainly is a drug where you can see patients in certain settings have a dramatic decrease in the enhancing of the on the gato enhanced G1 imaging, and yet on flare, it's much worse. And so I think we need more work done to really define whether it be diffusion or perfusion, or what kind of imaging with MRI, with spectroscopy, with PET, and PET can be with lots of isotopes. FLIP PET, for example, done by Klausi, was shown to be a very nice predictor of response to Avastin. I think that the neuroimaging helps us because with the antigenic agents, you can't always assume that just because you see the enhancing disease get smaller that the patient's getting better. The more work that can be done in that arena, the better off we are. I think the biggest point is that we have to convince the community that these patients are not terminal by definition. We have a number of patients that are out at least 11 years with glioblastoma and many more that are 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5 to the point where we're forming a survivor's clinic for patients who are two years off therapy because the irony is you come to a busy clinic and we have about 25 in our clinic Monday through Thursday for regular patients, then four new patients every afternoon, four days a week. You come in and you're on therapy and you're doing well you get a fair bit of time. You come in and you're on therapy and you have progressive disease, you get a lot more time because you have recurrent disease, you gotta think about new options. You come in off therapy, your scan looks good. Hi, congratulations, things look good, see ya. But you don't deal with, can they work? Are they fatigued? What's their home life like? What's their cognition like? What's their short-term memory? These patients get short-changed. Well, before, we never really needed to pay attention to large numbers of them because we didn't have any of those. But we have a lot now to the point that we're going to start a Friday clinic just for survivors. probably the only one in the country. And that alone ought to tell you that something good is happening in the field.
0: Now, about what fraction of these
1: patients do end up being long-term survivors? And is that a result of treatment or biology? That's a good question. I think we have about 15 to 20% of our patients who go at least three years with GBM. And I don't know if we're selecting for patients who would do well no matter what we did, but I don't think so, because until recently, nobody had patients like that. But it is very possible that the patients who are doing well are doing well, A, because we've chosen better therapy, but they have a molecular composition more likely to respond to that better therapy.
0: Now, when you talk about patients going out five or 10 years, are these people off treatment?
1: Are they- Off treatment, yeah, off therapy. And when you do autopsies, is the disease gone? Meaning mean, or if they, they die t- for a different reason. Yeah, right. Well, we haven't had that situation arise very often. I mean, what do you think is going on? Are these people cured or are they just living with their disease? I think they're cured. I think that when you've got patients out five and 10 years with no evidence of disease or no active tumor, cold PET scans, I think they're cured. I think in that patient population, I think it would be akin to a very interesting story. I worked for 18 years. One of my blessings was I worked with Gertrude Elliott who won the Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology in 1988, and she was a medicinal chemist who synthesized 6MP, 6TG, SEPTRA, Imuran. I mean, she deserved her Nobel Prize that she shared with George Hitchings. In the beginning, with childhood leukemia, there were some patients who were treated with 6MP. The majority went into remission, and then they failed and they progressed. And that's when they added in methotrexate and other drugs. And now we cure 80% of childhood cancer. But there's a cohort of patients with childhood leukemia who were treated with six months of 6-MP who were alive 25, 30 years later. Obviously, in that setting, their tumors were uniquely sensitive to 6-MP, and they survived because of one drug. And I think in GBM, that we're going to have the same thing. We're picking up patients now who may be more easily treated, although we're using new drugs to treat them. And I think the same thing is going to happen. We're going to have an ever-increasing cohort of surviving patients in this disease. I'm convinced of it.